Well, the other thing that we need to talk about, and I think we should do this in the next podcast, is um, the Superior Court of Ontario case of Tamin V. Jim Watson, the mayor of Ottawa. You can't prove it, oh, oh. You got nothing legit, oh, oh. The glove don't fit, oh, oh. You gotta acquit, oh, oh. I didn't smoke it, oh, oh. That's all you're gonna get, oh, oh. I'll never admit, oh, oh. I never took a hit, oh, oh. The charges won't stick, cause Monday morning I'm a brand new man. Tuesday, catch me if you can. Wednesday night. Welcome to the Docket, episode 80. My name is Michael Spratt. Hi, my name is Emily Tammon. Hey, Emily Tammon. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. It's been a while. It's been a while, I know. Happy Halloween Eve. The best, <laughs> most crafty, awful day of the year. <laughs> it's generating a lot of excitement at our house, though. So we haven't released a podcast for a while, as many people have told us. <laughs> Sorry, friends. It's um, busy. Yeah, it's been a bit crazy. But uh, we did record a podcast like three weeks ago now um, with our good friend, Peter Sankoff. Good friend of the podcast. And our new friend, uh, Dina Botos. Yes, we did. And of course, now it's a little bit out of date because we talked to them about an appeal they were about to argue at the Supreme Court of Canada uh, in the case of R versus Barton, which uh, people may have uh, heard a bit about since then. Um, and we talked a bit about the Kavanaugh <laughs> hearings, which like actually kind of feels like a lifetime ago. So I swear sorry. it was topical at the time. Yeah. But I mean, there's, I think we're planning on trying to be a bit more regular with podcasting coming out. We, <laughs> when don't we try? I know. Two a week. <laughs> we always say that. Two a because week. we have to finish the staircase. Yeah. We have like two more episodes to do on that. I hear that there is this little show called Making a Murderer Season 2 that's come out. Got to figure out what to do with that. We haven't even watched it yet. We haven't even watched it yet, friends. This is like, this is where we're at. I know. Haven't even been able to consume some of the finest Netflix fare. That's it. I'm quitting my job and we can just go (laughs) full-time podcasting on the big Iman publishing money. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, there was a municipal campaign going on. There were, you know, some other little things arising here and there. Well, the other thing that we need to talk about, and I think we should do this in the next podcast, is um, the Superior Court of Ontario case of Tamin V. Jim Watson, the mayor of Ottawa. There is a legal challenge before the courts in which I am one of the applicants, that is correct. Um, Challenging uh, his decision to, for no real reason other than he doesn't like what you have to say, blocking you on Twitter, which you argue, I think quite persuasively, uh, interferes with your constitutional rights. That's right. So we should talk about that, flesh it out a little bit more in another episode. uh, Definitely. So that we can wait until that is also not timely, uh, and then we can talk about it then. (laughs) <laughs> There's also marijuana has now become legal. True. We've got the issue of that legislation and the whole pardoning of historic offenses. We've got Bill C-75, the massive liberal omnibus crime bill. I just subjected myself to reading the, um, the transcripts um, that will soon be out about the clause, but two-day clause-by-clause consideration of... of you know, that like massive, like 300 page bill was quite depressing. So there's lots of stuff to talk about. There is. But this episode is about the case of 
Barton that was argued in the Supreme Court by our good friends um, and Kavanaugh. So it's a little bit out of date. And it also might be a bit inside baseball for some people. Yeah, so this is uh, a case that um, raises at the appellate level a number of really significant questions about um, how the justice system treats uh, Indigenous people, um, how people that are marginalized um, in many different ways um, don't always receive the quality of justice that many of us would hope. Uh, and so uh, what this this case was an appeal from an acquittal on a murder where the victim uh, was an Indigenous woman. And we'll talk a little bit more about the details, but just to say that um, we became very, very interested in the course of our conversation, as you'll see, about some relatively procedural matters. So not necessarily the issues that have been really highlighted um, in the media and in the public debate that's been taking place, um, we became very interested in some um, relatively um, inside baseball, like you said, issues in relation to appellate advocacy and other things, um, which ended up being the primary focus of our discussion. Yeah. And I mean, we talked to uh, Barton's lawyers who are appealing a reversal of the uh, acquittal that their uh, client received from the jury. Um, so obviously, it's a bit of a one-sided conversation. There's, you know, many different perspectives on this case. There are, you know, very important issues about how Indigenous people are treated by the justice system. Gender-based violence, uh, consent. Uh, consent, sex work. Um, so there's lots of things to unpack. And, um, I mean, I think Peter and Dino are very measured. Um, they concentrate on the legal issues. I do think that sometimes the media portrayal of these cases can, you know, maybe skew a bit the other way and concentrate on, you know, the bad facts that, you know, can make some very bad law. But I think that it's important to acknowledge that, you know, other than you, Emily, we don't have any other female voices. We don't have any voices from, you know, marginalized communities, the sex work community, people engaged in um, in that sort of uh, sort of work. We don't have any indigenous voices. And I mean, that's a function of we don't have time. We have full time jobs. We know the defense counsel. We are defense counsel ourselves. So that's the way that the conversation goes. And so if you know, people feel that there is a lack of diversity on this episode. I think they're probably right. And yeah. there are lots of ways uh, to get that information. I'm going to link in the show notes to uh, the Supreme Court's website, which you can um, read all of the factums from the Crown, from the defense, from the interveners, from indigenous groups, from women's groups. There, there were many, many interveners. Um, and I think, you know, I, I do think <clears throat> part of the, the public debate that was precipitated by this case in some ways actually falls outside of the case itself. And in a way, that's what kind of really interested us when we started talking to Peter and Dino's. Like some of the um, the issues that, that, yeah, that were being talked about by some of the interveners and just more broadly yeah, by the public and the, the media and everything um, were not necessarily issues that arose in the course of the trial, I guess is what I'm saying. So it's kind of an unusual situation and that really piqued our interest. But we felt that it was really important just to acknowledge that, um, you know, we did speak with one of the parties and none of the others. And, and so if it feels like there is a bit of a lack of balance, that's why. Yeah, it's, um, it's our podcast and sometimes it's unbalanced. 
But, um, you know, as soon as we can quit our day jobs <laughs> well, and do this full time and be like a real journalisty type people, then um, we promise to give you that balance. We make a lot of promises. All right. So let's go to our conversation with Peter and Dino. This episode is brought to you by Iman Publishing's Criminal Law Series. This series offers practical and procedural guidance for both defense and crown counsel anchored by the expertise of general editors Brian H. Greenspan and Justice Vincenzo Rondinelli. We're joined by a good friend of the podcast and a new friend to the podcast. Hello, Peter Sankoff. I'm happy to be back, Emily. Hey. The feud continues. Well, there is one very influential lawyer here. Her name's Emily Tammy. <laughs> but we also have another very influential lawyer, Dina Botos. Hi there. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. I'm a big fan of the podcast. We've, so we've got a good friend of the podcast and a good fan of the podcast. Yes. We are living the dream right now. Four people. This is going to be... This we all like the podcast. Well, it's okay. That's up, that's up for debate. I have to get something off my chest. My, I just wanted to say, I'm here for Emily. I, I'm happy to see you again, Emily. I'm really happy back. But ever since Michael specifically snubbed me and said, I think it was, don't vote for Peter Zankoff for the top 25 much. And let me just say, because I wasn't on this podcast, I went on my podcast, the, the Paw and Order podcast, by the way, which you can find at iTunes and Stitcher and everywhere. And I said, vote for Michael. Those were literally my words. Vote I said, Michael. vote for Emily and vote for Michael. And then Michael, I think the words were, don't vote for anyone who's not me. Were those the exact words, Michael? Did I get those right? If I'm not going to win, and I didn't, I'd like to drag everyone else down with me. Does okay. anyone else find it awkward when Twitter feuds uh, erupt into the real world? Like, I don't want to overwhelm our listeners, but you should know that all four people sitting here uh, in your talking into your earbuds were nominated uh, for being among the 20, 25 most influential lawyers. And... I just want to say, for those of us who try to pay attention to issues of gender parity, as the sole woman in the room and the sole winner, I just want to say I think this means sunny ways ahead for the profession. Does anyone agree with me? Or? <laughs> sunny ways are the way it is in Ottawa, isn't it? Absolutely. It's always. Always sunny always, ways. Always with the the sunny problem ways. was we canceled each other out. You see, we were all in the same category. Uh, I don't think so. I think well, that was we a were. You guys no, no, were. We, we the three, three of you were. The three losers. We the all three men lost. At the table. I would category. just like to say that I'm the only one around this table who qualified for the young lawyer category. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I see how it is. <laughs> that goes without saying. Yeah. All right, the feud is over. I'm happy. We don't have to. We're all friends again. No more gifts back at each other. All we're right. back on board. Sounds good. So, what are you guys in town for? Well, we are in town because we're appealing to the Supreme Court of Canada on Thursday. Uh, the matter of Bradley Barton and the Queen. Bradley Barton was acquitted of first-degree murder and the lesser-included offense of manslaughter on the uh, death of Cindy Gladue. And then uh, the Court of Appeal of Alberta overturned the acquittal in a 90-page judgment, uh, crapping on everybody who was involved <laughs> in various ways. And uh, so we've got... Uh, a veritable Swiss army knife of issues before the Supreme Court of Canada that we have only one hour to litigate. All right, so we're going to take a time out here for a second. 
just to go over um, some of the facts of the case to set it up. Um, because facts are important. And although, you know, appellate courts are courts of law normally and don't get into sort of the factual sort of trenches, um, facts, of course, are what, you know, drives those legal findings. So I think it's important to talk about the facts. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the appellant in this case is a man named Bradley Barton, and he met the deceased, uh, a woman named uh, Cindy Gladue, who was a 36-year-old sex trade worker um, at the Yellowhead Inn Hotel in Edmonton. Um, at the trial, the appellant, Mr. Barton, testified that Miss Gladue uh, and him had two sexual encounters. On the first night, um, he paid money for sexual services. Yeah, he says that that was consensual. Um, and it doesn't seem like there was evidence otherwise uh, about that first encounter. And in that encounter, they engaged in a range of sexual activity, including, and, and this is you know a little bit graphic, and, and we should say going forward that, you know, we're obviously going to be discussing sexual violence. And so um, people should keep that in mind going forward. And if that's not a topic that, that you want to hear or not a topic you want other people that you're listening with uh, to hear, skip this episode. They engaged Barton and Gladue in um, a variety of sexual conduct. The evidence seems to suggest that they met the second night, where again, money was exchanged for sexual services. In the course of uh, the sexual encounter that happened that night, the evidence, even of Mr. Barton, was that the sex was a bit rougher. And ultimately, uh, Mr. Barton found uh, that there was some blood coming out of Miss Gladue's vagina. He said that it looked like she was menstruating. He says that she seemed not concerned by it and went to the bathroom. Um, he says that he went to sleep at that point and he woke up in the morning and Miss Gladue was dead um, in a pool of blood uh, on, on the floor of the motel room. Um, the Crown alleges that the forensics and common sense shows that, um, that Mr. Barton engaged in non-consensual intercourse with Miss Gladue, um, intercourse that... Uh, that uh, wasn't agreed to by her and in the course of that intercourse he inflicted wounds they say with a weapon a knife of some kind uh, a sharp object in her vagina he disagrees with that he said that the injury must have occurred through consensual sexual activity when he was digitally penetrating uh, Miss Gladue um, there's some other facts that are that are important Mr. Barton told some lies uh, the morning after. He lied to some of his co-workers about where he was and what he was doing, and ultimately he turned himself in into the police. But there is that that element of post-offense conduct that you know the jury was told about and was instructed about that they could use uh, to determine if he was conscious of his guilt or not. But ultimately, these are wounds um, and injuries that occurred during a sexual interaction of some kind, the contention was whether that was that second uh, sexual encounter was consensual or not, and whether uh, Mr. Barton inflicted those injuries accidentally through the course of consensual sex or intentionally through the course of unconsensual sex where a weapon was used. Right, that's basically the issue that the jury had to determine whether they were satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt um, that uh, that it was an intentional act that 
cause the death. And so um, this was the fundamental issue that the court had to decide. But of course, um, the concerns that have been raised by many, and including the Court of Appeal, and we'll get into this in the course of the interview, are that um, the use of certain language, um, the uh, repeated reference to the indigenous deceased as a native um, and a sex worker and a prostitute um, and again we discussed this in, in the course of our conversation but that um, there the court of appeal and many other people feel that there was um, repeated inappropriate use of language by essentially all of the parties this is not a case about um, the defense being offside, you know, or the crown. This is the court of appeal um, felt that the defense, the crown, the trial judge, nobody um, really reined in um, use of inflammatory language that, in the court of appeal's view, might have tended to um, prejudice the deceased and prejudice the jury <clears throat> um, into uh, not valuing her life um, in the way that one would expect for a jury to be um, deliberating about the guilt or innocence of the accused. So that's the context there are so many issues that arise out of that that we didn't um get into but i nonetheless i think that we had a really great uh conversation uh and and i hope that uh, other people will enjoy listening to it as well all right let's get back to it enough of us how much experience do you have appealing from an acquittal to the supreme court of canada if any uh that did happen a few years ago in a case called kearney my client, uh, Michael Kearney, was acquitted of murder uh, when the jury mm-hmm. likely found him guilty of manslaughter, which is what we we're looking for on a case of provocation, okay. legal provocation. And uh, what happened there was it was a, a shooting death where Mr. Kearney uh, shot a man that he knew very well, a friend of his, who had been uh, beating on uh, that friend's wife, who just happened to be Michael Kearney's cousin, who he was close to. And during some heated exchange, uh, Mr. Kearney shot this man from 10 feet away with a shotgun, killing him. And so the, the uh, trial judge agreed with me to put provocation to the jury. They acquitted on murder, convicted on manslaughter, uh, court of appeal. Reverse. <laughs> Uh, reversed on that. Mm-hmm. We took that up to the Supreme Court of Canada and we did lose there five to two. So we went back to trial again without uh, provocation in our back pocket. But the jury had still a lot of sympathy, so they still acquitted of murder and convicted of manslaughter at the end of the day. But it was a long process. Wow, interesting. And I, I, I should say I wasn't in any way attempting to impugn your level of experience. I just... It, it is it's, weird. It's not yeah. that common. I, no, I no, think. just just so happens that yeah. I, I had the other one like that. And, sure. and despite what I might have seemed to be implying, that you actually do have that experience. <laughs> but this, this one's particularly weird, and, and it's, 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 it's uh, provided us with a lot of uh, difficulties in terms of framing the appeal, because normally it's so common to be appealing from the Court of Appeal decision or appealing from the court decision win or lose and what happens is the nature of the decision is that you're appealing one issue maybe two issues that's the way it is but what happened with us is because we had a jury acquittal and then the court of appeal reverses on 15 grounds like a lot lot. essentially saying there were 15 different errors literally so now suddenly the appellant when they get leave to the supreme court we're faced with a situation where we literally have to win something like 15 issues to survive, and, and you have to argue them all. And it's, yeah. it's very hard in that one hour time you've been given. Yeah. Picking unusual. up the issues that we absolutely had to, to win, win on yeah. and putting those first and 
center. And then the secondary issues, well, Peter left those for me to argue because they're, they're less important. <laughs> well, strategically, that's really challenging, though, because, you know, often when you're in litigation, you make strategic decisions about what issues to advance. You might think you have 10 strong grounds, but you might only choose to Correct. pursue three. But like you're saying in this case, yeah. you have to pursue them all. I mean, you don't have to pursue them all in your oral submissions. Yep. You have your written materials as well, of course, but uh, that is really challenging. In this case, it seems bit weird as well because I mean with a jury acquittal you don't know why they acquitted that's the nature of sort of convictions and acquittals at, at, at juries but then it seems like the court of appeal sort of added a bunch of issues that nobody had raised and raised a bunch of things that no one had raised so you're not only appealing and you know the the responding to the crown's appeal of a jury decision that you don't have any reasons for but then you have all the reasons that the crown Appealed, and then you have the Court of Appeal then adding more reasons yeah. or more grounds on as well. Well, yeah. I, I tell everybody this, but uh, we went in there with four grounds of appeal that the Crown was bringing, and we came out of there with eight grounds of appeal, four more that were added by the Court of Appeal with no prior notice whatsoever. So it was uh, quite the uh, quite the experience for that day and a half back in September of twenty. Well, and it's it's more than that too because then what's happened is we're attacking the process. So on top of all the grounds of appeal, now we're attacking the process and the mm-hmm. idea that the way in which the court raised new grounds, uh, the interveners have come on and added new grounds at both the court of appeal and at the Supreme Court. So literally at this point, I've lost track of how many issues there are. Because we have technically, we're not raising every one in our submissions, but we have technically nine, and that's not sub-issues, that's nine actual issues, because there's five and one, nine, and then the job, there's like ten ten issues, and then the interveners are trying to raise more. Like, it's it's insane. Like, the process has really, it's been very interesting to watch. Yeah, like, technically we have five grounds of appeal, but those... Those the are just ground, umbrella. Those are yeah. umbrella grounds. It's like ground one is fundamental which, fairness. Yeah. So it has like four sub. Really minor issues. <laughs> but to add to that, uh, several <laughs> interveners want to expand the routes to liability to manslaughter, pivoting off of Jobadan, which Jobadan means you're guilty if you, notwithstanding the other person's consent, if you intend to cause bodily harm and cause bodily harm then you have to live with the consequences, whether that's bodily harm or death, by, and that would be manslaughter. But that at least required subjective foresight of uh, bodily harm. What the interveners argued is they want to argue for a new route to liability in sexual assault cases or sexual activity cases is even if you don't subjectively foresee or intend bodily harm, but the reasonable observer would have foreseen it, uh, then you should be guilty of manslaughter that way. Yeah. So the Supreme Court has granted leave to argue that, which is sort like of, a sixth yeah. issue altogether. And um, that's a huge, like number one, that would be an enormous development in the law if that exactly. were to be accepted yes. by the court. And uh, that's that could be the subject of a full day appeal in its own right. We've said that. And Absolutely. it would require them to overturn, well, no, not to overturn themselves directly, but... Well, to expand. To, yeah. Yeah. And, and we've argued, we, 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 one of our arguments is that, like, we're, we're dealing with it in reply. Like, we don't, because our view is it's not, the one thing, the one thing the Crown and we agree on is that that is not determinative of the appeal. The Crown wants the court to provide guidance because they say the it's future. going back yeah. and they want to know. And we've argued, well, this is crazy. Like, this issue is too important to be argued in reply. And essentially what you have is four or five interveners on the other side all saying, 
it's a great idea to expand the test and we're going to try and deal with it for like three to four minutes and reply. Mm -hmm. It's really, it's just, uh, it's a very strange situation. Yeah. But you're right, Emily, that they would be overturning themselves yeah. from very old, not very old law, but pretty old law of Papageon in earlier cases mm -hmm. where the Supreme Court's always said that for sexual assault cases, there's always been uh, a subscription to the subjective orthodoxy, which is, you know, the person has to know, the accused has to know that he's touching someone against their will or against their consent. Uh, and what, they're, what the interveners want to do is shift that to uh, not a subjective orthodoxy anymore, but instead something that is what would the reasonable person think. And what would he foresee or she see? And that, that could be a very dramatic uh, change if, if they get it that way. So tactically, I mean, you've got, I read your factums, both you and, and the Crown, very briefly in the like 45-minute lunch break I had in, in my court case today. Well, they do call them legal briefs. <laughs> they weren't really brief though they were like 50 pages and 60 pages yeah. um, you've got like this immense record both trial and like a 90 page appeal judgment how do you and you've got an hour to argue it so how do you decide what you're going to hit in that argument are you going to do a bit of everything or are you going to focus on your strong point and, and just leave stuff for your written argument like how do you make that decision we're, we're trying to, we've been, that's been the, the toughest part of the case, has been trying to figure that out. And essentially what we did was we tried to rank the arguments in order of importance to the client more than importance to the court. Like, it, it sounds kind of crazy, but like we are starting off with motive, which is not an issue of national importance. I don't even think it's a particularly, it's important, but it's not huge. It's not what got us leave, but it's the most important issue to our client. And we, we need to get it off the table because if not, we're going back from like it's the only issue that's dispositive so we're doing a little bit of that and a little bit of mixing and matching with procedural grounds but there's no question that we are unfortunately very unfortunately de-emphasizing grounds that we think are important because there's just no way to get through everything and part of the problem as well is that the factual matrix is so complex and yeah. we're, we're literally I've never seen an appeal like this where the factual matrix of the record of the court is important and, and is, is complex but on top of it we're arguing it's a very rare case that several of our grounds of appeal are also arguing about what the other parties did leading up to the appeal so the record is supplemented with all the facta from the court of appeal we're saying well we argued this and they argued that and that's why this is unfair plus the appeal transcript like we're, we're essentially accusing the court of appeal of acting in an, an a partial manner or close to it, yeah. fundamentally unfair manner. So now we're scrutinizing what the Court of Appeal did. So like we have this huge evidentiary record from the trial supplemented by this huge evidentiary record. I've never seen anything like it, but I mean the jury charge stuff alone is like we have the emails because we're trying to show that the Crown established a clear position. So not only do you have the evidence from the trial, everything surrounding the trial is all in play. It's, it's yeah. tough. Wow. And of course, <laughs> uh, you don't have exclusive control over what issues you're going to be arguing either. I mean, you you have your own strategic decisions that you've made ranking, you know, your issues, but at the end of the day, it's the court will ask you the questions that they're going to ask you and you're going to have to answer them, which means you have to be prepared for all the issues, right? Yeah. Not just the ones that you think are strategically important. Yeah. And for people who aren't familiar with this case, I mean, this was a really, really high profile case, not only in Alberta, but, you know, a lot of places. I mean, it got a lot of coverage here as well. So, um, it kind of overlays, like you can imagine the Court of Appeal coming up with a 90-page decision, uh, you know, 
overturning an acquittal is not something that's generally done lightly. And when there's an enormous amount of public pressure, not, not that I'm saying that the court's decision was driven by that pressure, but mm-hmm. that, you know, um, the, the need to put all of that out on the table and, you know, ultimately give rise to so many new grounds. <laughs> um, it's probably not unrelated to the, the really high profile nature of the case, I would think. Yeah, uh, I think there was a lot of public pressure on the Crown to bring forth an appeal. Uh, not that they needed a lot of encouragement. I, I knew that was coming, but uh, the Court of Appeal and its judgment, when it came out with its judgment, in my opinion, tried to correct every inequity when it came, uh, in, in sexual assault law and Canadian criminal law, and uh, also dealing with Aboriginal peoples and their the systemic prejudice against them, they they tried to in one ninety page judgment try to correct all of that or at least uh, set the, that in motion. Um, and I'm saying there's meritorious purposes to what they were doing, but it came at the expense of my client who. I think, uh, won his acquittal fair and square. And uh, what's one of the unstated ironies is, uh, and it's certainly not being played out in the social media, is that uh, the crown between trial and the crown at appeal before the Court of Appeal reversed its position on the law on many aspects of this case. In fact, the only thing that they stayed consistent on was their argument on motive. They said that the trial judge should not have told the jury that uh, uh, proof of absence of motive could be important to them. But the rest of it, uh, the Crown was on all side, uh, on, on side for all of the, every paragraph of that draft jury charge as we went through it. I mean, we sometimes you haggle and you compromise and so forth, but the Crown agreed on the major points of law, which the Crown on appeal turns around and suggests um, was incorrect. And, wow. And well, what's interesting about it, particularly interesting, is you wouldn't know that if you read the Court of Appeal's decision because it's not in there. They don't. They don't make reference. They ignore and it. It's, I mean, was it? I mean, I want to say on one of our most recent episodes, we talked about jury charges and the importance of clearly asserting any objections in order to preserve a right of appeal, i.e., generally speaking, the Court of Appeal doesn't look very favorably upon counsel who try to advance grounds of appeal that weren't advanced at trial or take different positions on appeal than those that they took at trial. So um, yeah. it's interesting that not only did they indulge the Crown in that way, but that the Court of Appeal didn't even sort of justify allowing the Crown to even do that. I mean, you can look at, at the judgments coming out of the Ontario Court of Appeal, and we every do. week there's a decision <laughs> that comes out that says, you know, this this could be an issue, but defense counsel said they were satisfied, and that's a tactical choice, yeah. and, and we're not going to go back and, and, and interfere in most and cases. It goes further. I mean, that, that's the we're all familiar with defense doesn't object or defense was satisfied with it, but the Crown, it's more like uh, we're going straight to, you know, the principle against double jeopardy, and it's a very, very strong principle. It's it, The Crown and the defense are not alike. I mean, this is, of course, what we're asserting, but, I mean, there is a long line of jurisprudence that... 
does not, let's just, I'm going to be as diplomatic as I say and say it does not make it into the Court of Appeals judgment. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, again, I, I, I leave the decision for what it is in other ways, but it's amazing how like the report of that decision was in many ways viewed as a triumph and that may or may not ultimately wind up being so. But I, it, it's amazing that it's easy to construe it that way in the way that it's presented. And at the end of the day, I have a funny feeling that the Crown's reversal of position on appeal will be a telling part of what the Supreme Court does with this or the Supreme Court's going to be changing a lot of law like this is what I say to people it's like one of two things is going to happen either we're going to win on that point and people are going to be shocked like how could they you know get at that or a lot of law is changing like the Supreme Court if the crown has flexibility to reverse on appeal that's a big change yeah yeah and so I mean it's this case is really complicated for all the reasons that you guys mm -hmm. have have laid out but you know the reporting of it seems sort of simplistic and I think that might be a reflection of how complicated it actually is and, and how hard it is sort of to communicate those ideas but do you know as you had sort of alluded to I mean it's a sexual assault case there's an indigenous deceased the trial was I guess right before the sort of me too movement and yes. we're right in the middle of it now has has there been sort of different pressures or has it been uncomfortable or has it presented difficulties sort of getting ready for an appeal sort of in this moment? Well, I got to say that my ears have burnt now for the last couple of years uh, on, uh, you know, the judgment of the Court of Appeal, basically uh, criticizing defense counsel, crown counsel and the trial judge for referring to Ms. Gladue as a prostitute and referring to Ms. Gladue as a native woman. Um, and at the time, I didn't think that anything was wrong with it because in terms of the prostitute issue, that was mentioned by the Crown Prosecutor in her opening statement. She said, Ms. Gladue uh, is a prostitute and she struck up a working relationship with Bradley Barton and had uh, uh, dates with him on two consecutive nights, the second night uh, resulting in her death. So they basically announced that as admissible evidence from day one. And it, 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 it also played into our theory that Mr. Barton thought he had consent uh, on both nights, uh, and especially the second night, based on the first night as well as other reasonable steps that he took and all that. But uh, to read the social media coverage and to read several of the interveners commenting on it, uh, I, I, I feel like I was... Uh, raised below the Mason-Dixon line or something because it, it just feels awful that people are suggesting that we were trying to do anything disparaging to this uh, poor victim. In fact, uh, we were all trying not to do anything like that, but when people hear the term native or native woman or prostitute uh, uttered in front of a jury, they're thinking that, you know, all these racial stereotypes must have been used against Cindy Gladue no one cared about the victim, and that's why the jury acquitted. But, you know, with all due respect to those people, if you read the 1,800-page mm. transcript, it was not that way. It's just that you'd never know that if you read the Globe and Mail or if you read uh, social media because it's, it's a completely different narrative. And just to clarify on the first point in particular, is the criticism on the use of language, or is the criticism on the fact that the jury was even told that she was a sex worker? Like, is it is it the use of the word prostitute, or is it that somehow the narrative should have gone into evidence without any reference 
to the, the nature of their relationship at all because it would be prejudicial to the deceased. It's, it's a little both. Yeah. Uh, the Court of Appeal, in fact, one of the paragraphs in the Court of Appeal's judgment is this one word prostitute ushered in all sorts of notions of misglad use, consensual sexual activity with real or imaginary people, and basically poisoned the jury against Ms. Gladue. Okay, except that was stated in the first moment of the trial by the Crown Prosecutor. That wasn't our fault. In fact, if you're going to blame somebody, you blame the Crown for that. But what happens at a court of appeal is they say she was prejudiced and therefore the Crown gets a new trial based on And, and it's the same thing with the, the reference to Native. We went yeah. back and did all the work and looked it over. Um, I wasn't a part of the trial, to be clear. I, I came on at the appeal stage. But um, we went back and looked at the use of the term Native. And there's a couple of issues raised there. One is the term Native to begin with. Native is no longer viewed as the term of choice, obviously, right? So it's not, it's not the best term. Although fairly recently used, uh, it, it was interesting that we tracked it to usage by the Alberta Court of Appeal as recently as like 2015, like really using it. Actually, but, 2012. 2012, sorry. Yeah. But like, you know, but neither here nor there, but but still an interesting fact. And then what we what was noticed is that the term the term native was never used in any sort of, it was used as an, an identifying mark. And what's interesting was it was always used by the witness first, always. It was never used in opening by, by uh, Dino or by the Crown. It was essentially, they were asked, well, what did the woman look like? It was an identity issue. So it's Essentially, the woman was not known to all the other people in the bar. Then the interesting thing is the only person who did know her by name was the accused, and he never referred to her as the native. He referred to her as Cindy. That's how he called her every single time. Yeah. And then, but the, but the people who didn't know her, what would happen was they would choose the term and then counsel would repeat the term back. So but you saw we, a native woman. Like they, exactly. Yeah. So what we did was we looked through every usage, and it was never done. As yeah. soon as, what was interesting was, as soon as, like, for example, the accused who knew her said Cindy, you noticed both counsel switched to Cindy, and it was just, it was a switch. And then never in closing or opening was she referred to as anything other than as Ms. Gladue. Right. So it was like, it was a really interesting thing. And, and that's, again, I'm not taking a position on that, because, again, my position on the native being an issue that the Court of Appeals says requires correction, my basic position on it is straightforward. I, I actually, and I don't think, I shouldn't speak for Dino, but I personally have never looked at it. If they wanted to instruct on that, I, I would be okay with that. But at the end of the day, I think you would be too. If they wanted to instruct, oh, yeah. would instruct with a generalized instruction that the court said was a good idea about like not drawing stereotypes from it, I'm like, I'm okay with it. But like Crown never asked for it. Yeah. Nobody ever asked for it. No one thought it was an issue. I just don't think you can come back on appeal and say that's a new trial accused because nobody thought to ask about this. That's my own view. Yeah, I, I and, just think and that's the difficult. court of appeal was very morally indignant on all of that. And Michael, you know this from all of the criminal cases you run. Uh, whenever somebody is described to the court, either to a police officer or to a court, and they don't know that person. What they're, you know, what the police officer asks them is, describe this person, and you always start with apparent racial origin, height, weight, hair color, blue jeans, running shoes, whatever. But racial origin is always one of the descriptors, and it's, it's always been standard procedure. This time, it happened to be an Aboriginal woman, and let's face it, a lot of people use the term native, but not in a disparaging way. 
In fact, if you Google the term native, there's a lot of native friendship centers, native counseling services, certainly in Alberta, I can say that, mm. where they're not meaning it to be in a disparaging fashion, and it's still a term used. It's, it's certainly not woke, and I'll get, and I understand that. <laughs> yeah. But it's certainly uh, not like it's not the equivalent of a racial epithet, and certainly not like using the n-word on a. From everything that I've read, it doesn't seem like it was a defense strategy to to you know it to bring up either what Miss Cladu did or her race or anything. It's as the Crown quite likes to say, it's part of the narrative that informs the circumstances yeah. of, you know, how your client met her and why he was with her and what they were doing. Yeah. And that's not to say that that isn't a thing that does happen in criminal trials. Like, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I do think there probably are cases where counsel on either side, depending on the circumstances, improperly try to leverage certain stereotypes. I mean, you know, we've been talking about the staircase in, in recent yeah. episodes, and there's the whole issue of Michael Peterson's bisexuality and how... They, the Crown, the, the DA there so clearly tries to like provoke the jury into thinking that he's a disgusting human being yes. because of his sexuality. And they're pretty like explicit about it, really. Like, yeah. I don't want to shock you, but anal sex, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, so it, it's not to say that it's not a thing that unfortunately does happen in the criminal justice system. But just because it can be a thing, I mean, you have to look beyond just the use of words, mm. I would think, to to extrapolate some kind of actual effort to do that. Or even if it's not an effort to do that, some strong indication that it was improperly used. And mm. like for people, like non-lawyers, non-criminal lawyers listening, like the real challenge in an appeal from a jury verdict is you don't have any reasons whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. So when you have a, a trial judge that acquits or convicts, mm. the trial judge is required and usually does give detailed reasons both on his or her findings of fact and also on the law. The jury is just the finder of fact and we have all we can do is try to calculate backwards or so it's really really interesting to me that a, a appellate court could come up with that many grounds mm-hmm. of appeal or like that many deficiencies or that many reasons to say that the jury must have done something wrong or been misdirected because you don't have anything from the jury other than the utterance of, you know, the guilt or, or lack thereof of the accused. I mean, I think that's what's so dangerous in a case like this. Just as, I mean, when we talk about criminal law policy and developing laws, it's always bad to develop laws off sort of a rare or unusual or, you know, high-profile case. Yeah. And it seems like there could be major changes to, you know, basic criminal law, you know, principles that come out of this case and it's hard to know if, you know, those are driven by the unusual facts of the case or the time that the case is being litigated or, you know, the moment that, you know, we, you know, the society is having. And it's just it's hard to separate out, you know, what is legitimate change that should come and what is sort of maybe more of a reactionary uh, decision to a specific and, you know, very unusual case. Yeah, well, it's the old you know, bad cases make bad law, and uh, we're uh, optimistic that that won't happen here, but, I mean, there's certainly uh, a lot of people wanting the law to be changed uh, uh, for the reasons set out by the Court of Appeal. Hmm. There's no question. I, I'm preparing a presentation after this. I'm going I'm going to a couple of places in the spring. Actually, you're going to see this presentation because I'm doing this in the Northwest Territories. The Yellowknife mm-hmm. Conference? Yeah. Yes, you're going to be yeah. there. I forgot you guys are going to be there. And like, I, they, they granted me an hour and I'm doing, I'm putting a presentation together on like the, 
like what can come of Barton. And it's just sort of the things you don't know about it, like the things that are lurking in the decision. There's just quite a few of them that if they go ahead, if the Supreme Court doesn't grant our appeal, like there's like defense counsel need to be aware. Like, I mean, crown reversal on appeal is, is a big deal. Like it's a it's a big deal. And there are others, too. There's yeah. just stuff in there that's that's interesting. So, yeah. And the, you know, the social media never covers the crown. No, it reversal never comes on appeal. up. It's just not, you know, sexy or topical. Uh, but for crown prosecutors, criminal defense lawyers, and appellate counsel, that is a very meaty issue. And it's a, hopefully the Supreme Court resolves uh, some outstanding issues. I mean, the question is, I mean, we're talking about, it, it ties into so many different things. It ties into even like uh, Jordan, Jordan stuff. And we're talking about, it. I mean, the whole idea, if you think about it, was... Again, I'll just, you know, you draw your own conclusions because I'm obviously tied into the case. But I mean, you're talking about a, a crown and defense who went on for days, days over the weekend. The trial judge sent one of the drafts of the charge. I saw it today because I'm going through fact by fact. At two in the morning, the day before it's supposed to be, two days before it's supposed to be delivered because he's so eager to get out. So you're talking about negotiation, going open-minded, listening, taking everything, compromises, yeah. in my opinion. That's the way this works. It's like... Give a little on that. Give a little this. It all comes down. And it comes down to an agreement. And then apparently it's not an agreement. It's like the Crown is coming back and saying, no, we don't agree with that, that, and that. We want a new trial. And, and that's one of the things. That's, uh, that's and I'll, I'll end right uh, after this. But it's one of my most serious grievances is the Court of Appeal took gratuitous and unfair shots at a highly regarded jurist, uh, Mr. Justice Grasser, who worked tirelessly. I mean, he worked day and night. Emails exchanged between him and counsel, 11 o'clock at night, 12 o'clock, one in the morning, one Yeah, it was unbelievable. And he's working around the clock and busting his hump. The Crown is signing off and agreeing on all this stuff. Sure, there's an acquittal, and then appellate Crown, who is also being consulted with during the jury charge, okay? It's right on the record where the Crown counsel are saying, well, we spoke to appeals branch today and we agree with this or we don't wow. agree with that. Mm. All right, fine. But that same appeals branch is filing the factum before the Court of Appeal. The same appeals branch is filing the factum in the Supreme Court of Canada saying that everyone got it wrong including, at the including trial, the trial, including the trial yeah. judge and the Crown prosecutors mm. who really can't speak for themselves because they're not allowed to, generally speaking, and right. especially the trial mm. judge. So... Uh, I think it's been very unfair to the trial prosecutors and especially unfair to the trial judge. I just have one question um, in relation to the famously explosive um, exhibit that was um, introduced at the trial of the deceased's vagina, basically, right? Yeah. Like the, to, to demonstrate the, to physically show the, the injury that resulted in the death, right? Right. Um, and this obviously has also been very controversial at least in the media, in terms of, you know, um, people talk about how, again, because it was an indigenous deceased and how dehumanizing this would be for any woman, but that, you know, it, there's there's right. legitimate reasons for people to be disturbed by that having happened. But I'm just curious about um, how that came. Like, was there a pretrial application in relation to that that was, um, yeah. that resulted in evidentiary ruling before the trial? Sure, I'll give you the one-minute story. Mm -hmm. We're in the middle of the trial already, uh, but the first week, and the Crown says that they just went to visit the pathologist who explained the wounds and he was trying to show them uh, articulating his findings through the pictures. But then he said to them, 
uh, I'd really like to be able to show you and show the jury with the exhibit because we still have it preserved in formaldehyde. And so he brings it out and shows them. And uh, according to the prosecutors, could he could really articulate his findings better. So they brought this to court uh, over, and we had about a one or two day voir dire on whether the Crown should do that because I was saying, this should not be allowed. This is too graphic. This is going to uh, poison the, uh, the jury against my client and so forth. Uh, Justice Grasser ruled against me and, and ruled in favor of admitting it, but he actually did a very thoughtful judgment on it, describing how people are not as alarmed anymore by graphic evidence. Uh, people have evolved in terms of what they see on TV and so forth. So it's a bulletproof judgment, and uh, in my opinion, but... Uh, so he ruled in favor of it, and the Crown was then allowed to bring it. But the compromise was that it would not just be put on a table in front of the jury. It was put behind opaque glass in the corner of the courtroom with an overhead projector so that the projector would show a topographical view of it where the doctor would poke it with blue gloves on and all that stuff and show the findings. And it would... And the, projection of that image would be on a screen beside the jury. Okay. So that was the indirect way that they could watch it. And then my pathologist was allowed to deal with it in the same way. Wow, that is something else. And is that evidentiary ruling being impugned on the appeal? No, because, I mean, we won the case, so we didn't have any reason to. And the Crown introduced it, so they didn't have any reason to complain about it. Mind right, you, but they've obviously you, complained. That didn't stop them before. Well, that's, what, that's why I asked, because I know they've complained about other things. Yeah, they're, 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 the interveners, there are interveners trying to raise it yeah. indirectly. Like, they're just trying to talk about how it affected the overall prejudicial nature of the This case. was another indication yeah. of how insensitive the court was to uh, the, the Aboriginal victim. Right. And it's interesting because, you know, that's how I framed it. And then you made the point that you also had serious concerns about it being prejudicial for your client. So yes, yeah. it's interesting how it's, um, yeah. you know, viewed as being problematic on every side. The, the one thing I'd suggest in the future, if things like that should ever arise, is the court should appoint a, a, a friend of the court to represent the family's wishes, mm -hmm. uh, where no one spoke for them. They were in the courtroom watching, and the, but I don't know what exactly... I, that is to say, they were watching the voir dire, uh, not the actual evidence when that happened, but uh, I think a friend of the court to represent and tell the court about the family's wishes would probably be uh, the, the best way to go in the future. Yeah, that is... And are there precedents for that kind of... Like, are there other cases where... I, I think similar? there are. I think it can be done. I no, no, but are there, has it has it had it happened previous? Like, were there? Examples? You mean the the the, the like exhibit the physical, or having the exhibit. third party? No, no, no. Sorry, sorry. Is there precedent for during the two yeah. days we had to scramble to prepare? <laughs> we tried to find Canadian precedents on human tissue being uh, introduced, and we couldn't find anything. And to this day, I think it's the only time in Canadian history that uh, human tissue was introduced as an exhibit, mm. and quite likely uh, in North America as well. I'm told, though, that uh, in England back in the old day, <laughs> good old days, Drag in the court. they uh, probably did introduce these things. Uh, well, they did a lot of other disgusting things back then, too. <laughs> <Yeah>. so. <laughs> Their trials were a lot quicker then. <laughs> like, you got to do it before the body decomposes. <laughs> 
So Emily's last question was a bit heavy. I'm going to ask a lighter last question. Supreme Court, what sort of like superstitious things do you guys both engage in? Like a new pair of shoes before you go in each time or wearing the same shirt that you've worn like before? Is there anything... And we won't release this till after you argue it, so the crown <laughs> won't be able to like mess with your mess with you. Your, yeah, exactly. I can't say I've got any traditions or superstitions that have worked one hundred percent of the time. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not. I don't think I have anything. I uh, uh, used to be that the night before the appeal, we'd go to Mama Teresa's for dinner, and uh, but we enjoy that experience so much that that is the restaurant that we're. Not going to go the night before because... You can drink more when you go there. Yeah, night. yeah. Exactly. but we're going there the night of the 11th to uh, enjoy ourselves. So, yeah. But I, I, I don't think I have any superstitions. I'm, I'm not a superstitious I'm... guy either, so I don't have any. I should come up with something. You need to come up with something. Yeah, I should come up with something because I need some good luck. See, I well, think... what I need is a 100% winning track record. That's right. I, I don't have that. Yeah, so you can both... work backwards. You have, 50, 50, yeah. 50, so. you have to look back at every case you've won and find out what the commonality <laughs> what was is. What the common... Yes, what was the common? Yeah. I mean, it was just interesting to me the way Mike prefaced his question because he is a wear the same shirt over and over again, Are you? a big trial yeah. kind of guy. Yeah. And, like, he claims that it's a superstitious thing, but I think it's really just like a, there's too much other shit going on in the Could middle be. of a trial to wash Could my be. shirt kind of thing. But It's true, and by the end, like, the crowns don't want to come around me. smell. Well, actually, I do have one uh, item I can fall back on, which is this. I hired Professor Peter Sankoff for this case, <laughs> to do over. this case, and we won on Souter last year. In fact, that was October 11th, 2017, yeah, we came luck. and argued that one, and uh, Peter was on the show talking about that uh, mm-hmm. before. That's right. Uh, so, this Peter, could be the new tradition. Peter is one for one with me, and I'm sure it's going to be two for two. Two for We're two. Open. I'm hoping, anyway. Another quick timeout. So I can give a shout out again to Emon Publishing. One book that I think that every criminal defense lawyer, every Crown prosecutor should have on their bookshelf is Criminal Appeals, a practitioner's handbook. It's authored by Mark Halfyard, Michael Deneen, and Jonathan Daw. These are giants in the appellate practice. And whether you're an appeal lawyer or a trial lawyer, this is a book that will tell you how to win your appeals, and more importantly, if you're in the trenches in front of trial courts, how not to make mistakes that are going to end up in the Court of Appeal. It's an essential guide to not only the strategy uh, of appellate practice, but also the procedural process of criminal appeals at all levels of court in Canada. For our listeners, Emond is offering 10% off titles in the series, and again, just visit emond.ca slash CLS and enter code docket10 at checkout. So um, just before we wrap up, uh, we thought that given the esteemed company that we're in, that we could just take a minute to bitch about what just happened in the U.S. with the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh uh, as the new Supreme Court judge. Imagine you guys were appearing before the U.S. Supreme Court on Thursday and... It's like Kavanaugh's second day on the bench. That must be sort of awkward. To, <laughs> and a sexual assault case to boot. It must be sort of awkward. to. I know he was sitting today, which is, I think, the first day that the court was sitting after he was sworn in. Yeah. I don't think they did anything of, of real importance or you know political significance or anything, but that's got to be sort of an awkward feeling being counsel in front of him. No. 
It's so weird. It's such a weird, it's so different yeah. from the way we do things. Uh, I, I wouldn't be so, I mean, that could be one of the concerns. I, I just think some of the things he said during the confirmation hearing uh, a couple of weeks ago, when he comes all out uh, full of uh, fire and fury and, and talking about a uh, left-wing conspiracy and the Clintons, and worse, what goes around comes around. That's what he actually says. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That's a jurist yeah, you wait till on the you're Supreme before me. Court. But in you know? fairness, he explained it in his editorial. It is op-ed where the judge wrote... Am I... Wait a minute. judge wrote an op-ed. Yeah, remember earlier when you said <laughs> yeah. it's a little unfair to the trial judge <laughs> yeah. in the Barton case because, you know, the, the judge can't go and speak for himself. That's what he out. should have done. Yeah. I mean, yeah. one thing that I find Surreal. really interesting as I w- have been watching all this unfold to my great dismay is... How, if you were to compare at the nomination process or the nomination process in the U.S. to the process that we have here, you might be left with the impression that our process is actually more vulnerable to partisanship because you know essentially it's at the exclusive discretion of the prime minister who, who to appoint. And until mentioned. recently, there was no hearing, there was no list of names. It yeah, was and, just a tap on the shoulder. And to the extent that there is one now, it's a pretty soft yeah. process uh, compared it's more of like a, a pony show than you know right. it's like here's our here's our nominee as opposed to you know let's really and I think our system has a lot to commend to it because of the fact that we have strong institutions and you know ostensibly anyway respect between you know parliament and the judiciary but for me watching what recently unfolded in Ontario with uh, Premier Doug Ford really undermining the judicial function altogether, kind of um, almost rejecting the idea that judges interpreting the charter is like what they're supposed to do under our constitution. So I do like I'm increasingly, I I remember years ago talking to my mom about our judicial appointment process and, and her sort of saying, you know, this is not a process that you would recommend to, you know, an emerging democracy or, you know, a, a country that's looking to really strengthen, um, a process, but at the same time, it has served us well because of these kind of like conventions that we have, right. and seeing how grotesquely that unraveled in the U.S. Not not that this was the first time. Like I mean, it has. There's been partisanship in judicial appointments, but in the past. But um, it does make me just kind of wonder, like, what's Doug Ford going to do when he starts appointing um, judges in Ontario? Yeah. Uh, you know, and what decisions are going to drive that? And you yeah. know. And you're right. I mean, in Canada, all the prime ministers, uh, I mean, there's going to be left and right wingers, but at least when it came to picking the, the judges for the Supreme Court, uh, there was some balance to it. You could you can trust, okay, well, you know, uh, this guy's going to go, he's going to pick uh, more conservative judges and so forth. But at least there was some balance that we could trust. And I'm afraid that, you know, if we start electing more premiers uh, like uh, Ford, who wants to be Trump of the North... We're looking at you, Jason Kenney. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If if we start electing leaders like that, it's going to be a matter of time where we start electing uh, federal... uh, 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 Well, prime ministers get into that position where they are really taking a, a... no-holds-barred approach to politics, and they're going to start introducing things that everyone disagrees with, and and it could could, uh, turn into something quite ugly and partisan. And I'm I'm hoping that we don't look like 
America does in 50 years. And when you look at sort of the history of, of our court, like over the last 10 years, I mean, you don't have the same block. I mean, you, you know that Republican-appointed judges usually always vote together on an issue, and you know that, especially now, it's going to be a 5-4 split on an issue. But here we had the Supreme Court, uh, a lot of whom were appointed by Stephen Harper, overturning and finding unconstitutional a bunch of laws that you know the Harper government brought in. So we didn't see that sort of partisanship. Mm-hmm. Um, when you see, it's, it's really, it almost brings us a bit full circle, because it's like... Um, it is, we don't have that kind of partisanship at any level, I don't think. But nonetheless, we've all been in situations where we're, there are members of the courthouse who have agendas. I, don't, I wouldn't call them left-right agendas per se, but they, they, they manifest their agendas a bit more overtly than others. And whenever you see that, like, you know, we've seen cases come up where we're like, uh, it's nice to know the Supreme Court's there at the end of the day because we've seen some decisions come down and... Uh, you come to the Supreme Court and you do feel that the court, it sounds silly because like people are like, oh, the court should be more connected. And I'm like, something like, no, the court should be more above it all. Like the more the court is above it all, the more, the better I feel about it. Because at the end of the day, it's that being above it all that keeps them out of the fray of, of what's going on. And it's yeah. those connections sometimes that it's like people, it, it's really hard to tell people this is the wrong result or that you shouldn't do. And, and it's nice. We, we know it, Dino and I felt it last time we came here. I mean, you take a case where we were dealing with a, a, the Souter case where this guy killed a, a young boy. Like, that's the reality of the case, right? And it's like a young boy. And that is really hard for local judges to get out of their system. They can do it, but it's hard. And it's like, it's kind of nice. You come to the Supreme Court and you, you feel it right away. It's like this detachment. There, there is no issue that they have to grind. And it's like, it, yeah. it made a big difference in the hearing. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, just, it's so refreshing to see a court really just open-minded to the merits of your argument. Instead of, uh, you know, uh, a strong... But a child a, died. Yeah, yeah. A, a child died, you know, and you, your client killed him. So what do you got to say to that, right? I mean, to deal with, you know, to, to impart justice uh, means you got to be open-minded and fair. And uh, it is really a, an enjoyable experience, even when you lose in the Supreme Court. Uh, it's an enjoyable experience because you really think that you got to argue on the merits and they just decided it uh, the other way, but they decided it honestly. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we're all looking but for. But we reserve the right to withdraw these comments yeah. on Friday. <laughs> well, I, you know, it I doesn't go our way. For those of us that are particularly implicated in criminal law in particular, I think the kind of left-right dichotomy doesn't fit very well with criminal law. Like you will have judges who are more socially progressive, but who, like, I'm thinking of Claire Le Jubé as an example, as, like, uh, someone who was progressive on sort of social justice issues, but not necessarily on criminal justice issues all the right, time. Right. And uh, I think that can make it tricky for um, a politician who's trying to make those decisions based on, is this person conservative or is this person liberal, mm. you know, small L liberal, mm. because, like, not every legal issue fit squarely into just two categories like you know all conservative judges will think this way on all these issues and Mm -hmm. vice versa so Mm -hmm. um, it really cuts across the spectrum it's really interesting to watch that too and and i always used to say of course i'm going to defend clearly but 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 i but i will say like you know if you go back and look through jurisprudence for example 
yes, there's no question that there's a bend. I'm not going to suggest otherwise. But like, if you go look and like on evidence or substantive criminal law, it was there was more open mindedness. It was certainly willing to consider. And you see, you see, she comes out on some of those decisions on 2014. It was not because yeah. that was when her she philosophy. finds the breach. That was her philosophy. Yeah. But that's but not I'm like, partisanship. No, that's not partisanship. Right? That was her philosophy towards how 2014 should operate. But I'm just saying. But but even then, and we look at a judge like we came out in Souter. It's like Gascon. Like I would never have guessed that Gascon is a Gascon. Really, it seems to me his one of his things is he's very he very he really cares about process and he's mm-hmm. very interested in that. And it's like in Souter, like he was our champion. Like I thought De Gascon was fantastic, of course, because he came down on our position. But but it's like I thought like that was interesting. Like that wouldn't have been my. Do you know what I mean? I wouldn't have gone like oh he's the liberal standing up because. He's not necessarily, but on process issues, he cares that things are done in the correct way. And I thought that was interesting. Anyway, yeah, right. I think that the like the liberal conservative labels, I, I don't think tell very much. And I think what's wrong in the States is it's, it's completely partisan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's I mean, it's not, I exactly. It's, you know, you're from either, it's it's not you're liberal or conservative. You're either a Republican or a Democrat. You're on yeah. one tribe you're or the other. You're with us or you're against us yeah. too, right? And yeah. I, I mean, I think that, that is a huge problem with with Kavanaugh and how he came off for all the reasons that you said, Dino. Mm-hmm. I also think that I've never seen testimony from any witness that I've dealt with in court, either my client being cross-examined, often really unfairly by the Crown, or witnesses that I've cross-examined, you know, sometimes very, very harshly, like a hard cross-examine. I've never seen any witness come off as unhinged, as argumentative, Petulant. as non-responsive, yeah, as... You know, as as he did. Yeah. I mean, that's totally non not judicial. And then, I mean, uh, the allegations of of the sex sex assault, and I can see how you know, I can see how reasonable people can disagree on, sure. on that. And I mean, I've I've had some positions about the presumption of innocence being really important in the court, but you know, this was in, a, job in a job interview for yeah. the for for their, you know. Either if you're, you know, a politician like Patrick Brown was or, or you know, a judicial nominee like Kavanaugh, you know, maybe the, the presumption doesn't necessarily fall down the same way. Maybe you don't need to have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And like, I can see reasonable people disagree on yes, that. Yes, I do. But even yeah. if you can move beyond that, I think the whole politics and the way he presented himself disqualified That's, him right there. That was the disqualifying factors. I mean, you can't really say what happened, uh, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But you can say how this guy handled the pressure and how he uh, reacted to these allegations and, and how, he, how emotional he reacted and how, you know, not, how, basically how he blew it when it came to trying to show himself to be a qualified judge to the Supreme Court or any court. Yeah, and that's what the, the law professor letter said, right? Like it yeah. started with 650, it ended up with over 2,000 law professors saying, and they said he's not fit for any court right. in their, in their yeah. letter. And, you know, to me, the part that makes me <clears throat> the most um, sort of disappointed by what happened is that his conduct in that hearing gave Republicans an out. Like they didn't have to say they believed that he had sexually assaulted anyone, yeah. you know, and I, and I see how some of them really struggled with reasonable doubt and the presumption of innocence, even though I think we might disagree about exactly to what extent it even applies in that setting. But even if you were really hung up on that, this gave them an opportunity to say, you know what, even if I was prepared to accept, to say that never happened, 
Yeah. Which I think right. would be tough given how compelling right. the complainant's testimony was. was. But even if you felt that you the doubt was with him and it was substantial and you just couldn't but you could still if you had any kind of like humanity to you <laughs> or yeah. if you were driven by anything other than than pure tribalism, yeah. you could have said this way that he behaved on that day makes him unfit for office. Yeah. And then and the thing is they have others. They have a whole list they, of they other judges. He wasn't even on the A list yeah. to begin with. The reason he was on the list is because he wrote that memo long ago about how uh, oh. uh, sitting presidents shouldn't be impeached or, right. or questioned or sued and all that. So Trump's like, this yes. guy's for me. This is my guy. So he suddenly gets front of the line service because of that, right? Mm-hmm. You know who I admired the most in all this were those two women that uh, confronted uh, Jeff Flake in the elevator. The paid actors, you mean? because according to Trump somebody's looking for an artificial appointment in the States I've rarely seen a combination of fury and articulation and eloquence in in those two women they were just phenomenal and when the the one woman just kept saying you look me in the eyes you look in my eyes and tell me that my experience doesn't matter I mean and you're totally right because it was raw emotion but it wasn't like sometimes raw emotion can be all over the place yeah. and this was raw emotion that was like channeled yeah. and yeah that was yeah when i, I when i lose my temper i turn into a babbling yeah. idiot right <laughs> exactly. not these women they were yeah. just just perfect but then you still have susan collins and flake and all these people still vote to confirm and i mean my biggest fear yeah. is i mean the courts always in the states has always been sort of a political body. I mean, like you have Bork and the Federalist Society and, you know, the Republicans holding up Obama's nomination nominee for, for, you know, nine months or whatever it was. Yeah. But I mean, despite all that, I still get the sense that you, you know, even if you disagreed with the court, you could sort of trust the process or fool yourself into trusting the impartiality and, and the process. I'm worried after this that what happens when you have half the country that just doesn't respect what the court says? Mm. Um, and I don't know how you sort of recover from that. That's That seems to be a pretty big erosion of a, of a court. And, yeah. and when you have a president who uh, says, well, uh, I'm not going to, you know, don't respect this judge because his he comes his parents are Hispanic or, he, you know, he was born in, yeah, in America. Was it New Mexico or something? Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, but the, you know, he, he, you know, how how is there any support or respect for the one third, you know, one branch of government if your own president is disparaging that branch of government? I mean, for me, one of the biggest things that I'm hanging my hopes on is that there are some of those Republican appointees who are not um, predisposed to overturn the Supreme Court's own precedents, and when it comes to things like Roe v. Wade. You know, when you ask newly appointed judges, you know, what's your position on these cases or whatever, but there are, as I understand it, and I'm not a close follower of the U.S. Supreme Court, but there are a couple of judges there, I think the Chief Justice might be one of them, who is not very keen to overturn the court's own precedents, and, like, we'll have to wait and see how that all plays out, but there's still, like, this sliver of hope that some of these really, these decisions that go to really fundamental rights, um, maybe the court won't be inclined to overturn them. That's not to say that they won't chip away at them in other ways. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I'm We're going to have a lifetime to figure that out, good right? Times yeah, because he's going to be around yeah. for a long time. Well, and Trump just said today that he's like, maybe I'll get to appoint another two or four judges. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I know, and everyone's... Please telling, don't die, Ginsburg. Yeah, please come don't on, die. Ginsburg, don't die. Yeah, but let's also 
you know, remain our, like, maintain our own vigilance at home as well for seeing how Absolutely. things are unfolding. Because it's very easy to be distracted by what's happening in the U.S. and to pat ourselves on the back and think, you know, everything is fine here. But we do sometimes, and a lot of issues have a tendency to be just a few paces behind what's happening in the U.S. And, uh, you know, I think we need to be, you know, never take anything for granted. And, and these moments of reflection that we've had and where we're kind of reminding ourselves what we value about yeah. what works here. Yeah. Let's like all collectively remember to stand up for those things, even when they seem only a little bit under attack. It's not even an issue here at the federal level though, because Trudeau's not really appointing any judges, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael, he's busy on criminal code reform. He's still a, holding one breath. Thing, one thing at a time, one thing at a time. Well, the day after Trump uh, won, uh, we, we well, we had an election party the, the night uh, of the election, and by nine o'clock, everyone wasn't was much going of a party. I, I almost uh, slept in the fetal position. Doesn't sound, doesn't sound <laughs> like I, it was much. I of a told party. my students the next morning. I says, now more than ever is uh, is time to be a lawyer yeah. and to to stand up for rights and liberties because uh, this is exactly. You know, something bad is about to happen here. And sure enough, two years later, a lot of these things are happening. So. Yeah. Well, on that happy, happy sunny ways kind of a note, <laughs> we're basically doomed. And good luck, everyone. Yeah. Thanks a lot, guys, for coming. <laughs> Thank it's, you guys so much. You guys have a hard case with hard facts. And I mean, I think that you're doing a good job to argue the law on it. So It was a real pleasure to be invited. I thank you both for... Uh, letting me come and uh, thank Peter for suggesting it. Yeah, that's great. It was okay. Well, yeah, yeah, it, was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was okay. I mean, I, just, I hope the two of you are <laughs> Get the fuck out of really my house. We still, after, after this is over, we gotta hug it out. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, next true. year when you're nominated again. It's time. I'm sure at that point he'll be jam. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for listening, everyone. See ya. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh-Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com, or you can subscribe to the docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Tamman, and you can follow me on Twitter at M. Spratt. Thanks for listening.